Welcome again to the Converge podcast, where we seek to help you build a Christian worldview in a non-Christian culture. This, of course, is the point where mission and doctrine converge. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, give us a thumbs up on YouTube, maybe subscribe to our channel, or go over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to that, give us a five-star review, maybe write a few sentences on your favorite part of the podcast or your favorite thing about Nate's face. The wonderful thing that we're going to do today is we're going to bring glory to God by talking about a Christian worldview. Welcome again to the Converge Podcast. My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And we are both pastors at Village Church. Now, we want to talk today about the holidays. We're heading into that season. It's uh, heading very quickly into Thanksgiving, and then Christmas will be upon us. We just finished a little over a week ago with the Halloween festivities, and undoubtedly, it seems like this doesn't happen every year, but it has happened this year and, and a couple of years in the past where we have been asked a few questions, but we've also been accused of a few things, where ho- uh, holidays rather, are concerned, uh, and so we kind of want to address how do we head into the Christmas season, and I want to want to answer some questions, but I want to probably delve deeper than most people mean to when they ask those questions, more so to just very kind of give a broad overview of how we as Christians should think through what we do where cultural practices are concerned. Um, the fact of the matter is, is where Halloween is concerned, uh, we as pastors tell everybody, hey, give out candy for trick-or-treaters, take your kids out trick-or-treating, let them wear costumes. Um, we even have our student ministries here has a big Halloween party every year uh, that, that everybody enjoys. And of course, we, we get a few questions where that kind of stuff is concerned about the pagan origins mm-hmm. of, of Halloween. And you know, isn't that a satanic holiday? Are we promoting witchcraft when we use the term Halloween? I know that when I was growing up, uh, we rejected the term Halloween, and we had a fall festival right. <laughs> uh, where all the kids wore costumes. But you know, you couldn't wear a witch costume. You couldn't, you know, you you couldn't wear certain costumes. But uh, you you could basically do anything. And of course, we got candy. We went to the church. It was a big, big thing. But since we didn't call it Halloween, and and so I've I've always been kind of very purposeful in using the term Halloween. I want to talk about that, but I also uh, want to talk about Christmas. Now, Thanksgiving doesn't really cause any problems, of course, but Christmas, uh, we get the questions every year about, isn't Christmas over-commercialized? Mm-hmm. Um, should you buy your children gifts? Aren't you teaching your children uh, materialism when you do things like that? And of course, then there's the the figure of Santa Claus. And of course, uh, if you want to go the, as far as you want to on the polar end, uh, there's a YouTube video <laughs> called Satan Claus, where yeah. if you rearrange the letters of Santa, you get Satan spelled out. And a lot of parents, and of course, we have people from both camps in our church. Some parents think Santa Claus is literally from the pits of hell. He's going to steal their children's soul. Uh, he's going to make them not worship Jesus Christ with their lives. And then, of course, on the other side, you have people like me who uh, just think it's fun. Uh, you, th- you think it's fun to give your kids an imagination. Uh, you're not uh, giving your children a false hope of another Savior, of course, but rather uh, I'm seeking to engage the fun side of the holidays to to do that. Now, we're going to do a deep dive. We're going to talk about culture 
Um, I think this is a good time to talk about how Christians should engage the culture around them. And uh, just a couple of questions over the season has led us to this, but a few years ago, and I think this is abundantly helpful in the way that we have conversations like this, and I'm not telling everybody you have to land exactly where I am, and I think that's going to be abundantly clear as we go through uh, the information. But Mark Driscoll uh, released kind of a guide as to how Christians should think through the culture, and he used three, I think, very helpful terms where culture is concerned, receive, reject, redeem. And that that really is, he calls it a taxonomy, but that's a a systematic process through which you can think through anything where culture is concerned and come to a conclusion about culture. Yeah, what we're doing here is we're, we're trying to come up with how do we evaluate how we think through ways we participate in culture. So, I mean, you, you set up a lot of different issues will be good to talk about because those examples will help explain what we're talking about. But on the one hand, do we completely separate from culture and just make it all about the church and make it only about what we do in relation to our direct worship of Jesus? And, and that is the way some communities have gone. On the other extreme, we're certainly not going here, but do we completely syncretize with culture and go along with everything in it to where there's no differentiation between the church and culture. So we know that neither of those are correct. So we need a way to think through, okay, how do we take some aspects of the culture and participate them, but in a way that does still bring glory to Jesus. So that's what Mm -hmm. the receive, reject, redeem framework is doing. Yeah. And I think it's very important for people to understand that you have to think through to the logical end of every decision that you're making. Um, some of the logical ends of the way that Christians treat certain aspects of culture, if you tease that out to where you ultimately have to go, you're going to find yourself on an Amish commune in Pennsylvania sure. <laughs> churning your own butter uh, because you've rejected so much where culture is concerned. And I want to talk through, what do we mean when we say receive the culture? All right, the, the, what we mean by that is that there are things in culture that are part of God's common grace to all people that a Christian can simply receive, um, like computers, like there's a television set in my uh, house. Now, when I was a child, that was a very controversial thing. There would be revival services at my church where people would literally mm-hmm. bring their television, put it on the altar, and they would sacrifice it for the sake of the gospel. Uh, you know, I have an iPad in front of me right yeah. now. That That is a, a great part of the culture that we are receiving. Uh, so much about, um, you know, the way that we use technology, the way that we use podcasts even. Uh, These are things that are part of God's common grace as we advance the culture. Christians are able just to latch on to them and use them to further the cause of the gospel. And so we can receive all of those. Now what we do with those things may fall into the reject, redeem category, but Mm -hmm. just the fact that they exist and that can be used yeah, we can receive. Yeah, so just about like the fact of living in a neighborhood, right? Uh, you know, there are certain uh, sects and cults that would say, "Oh no, you don't live in a neighborhood. You have to move to Montana and live in a compound." Uh, but then there are also things in culture that we reject uh, because they're sinful or they're just not beneficial to us. So from the sinful category, look, we have a culture that is uh, that is just saturated in pornography. Mm-hmm. As a Christian, you reject that anything that God has explicitly told his children 
This is sin. We re- we have to reject it wholesale. Um, that, I know that there was a controversy in our. Uh, there has been a controversy in our church before. Is it okay for Christians to go to drag shows? And the answer is no. It's not okay. That is something that should be rejected because it is immoral. Anything that at face value is immoral, must be rejected by Christians, and it is actually rejecting those things is a testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the reject category is probably the easiest one to flesh out, but it's still one that we need to be clear about because I do think we're headed into a cultural season where there are more and more things we're tempted to not reject that need to be. So, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, there's a third category, and this is the category that takes the most wisdom, takes the most thought. Uh, You can get into error very quickly on either side of this road, either ditch you can fall into, but there are simply things in culture that are not bad in and of themselves, but can be used in a sinful manner and need to be redeemed by God's people. Uh, You know, um, God has made sex for our pleasure, and so we can redeem what culture has made immoral by putting that in the marriage category. Um, Education can be something that is used for sinful purposes to promote uh, secularism. Well, we as Christians can redeem certain things about that. And I'm going to say Halloween was something that started with a pagan origin, but as a Christian, because of what culture has done with it, we can redeem that aspect of uh, the culture as well. We should receive all of God's good gifts, even if the culture around us is using them for immoral purposes, and we should use them for the glory of God and so that we can push the mission of Jesus forward. Yeah, I think the thing that people need the most help thinking through is the redeeming part, because mm-hmm. that's where you get into the weeds often in a lot of different areas. And so that's what really what we want to talk about is what does it mean to redeem the culture? Like, what does it mean to redeem something from the culture? Because there is a, I think, a very wrong way to think about redeeming the culture that the Christian subculture has sometimes been guilty of, which means just take whatever culture is doing and make a Christianized version of it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. make a, you know, a Christian version of this, a Christian version of that. Um, That's how I ended up in the 90s with very lame video games. Yeah. That were about like Moses wandering around in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, like That's not redeeming the culture. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about how do we participate in the culture uh, in a way that brings glory to God, and what do we mean by that? So, Yeah, and, and I, I think it's important to understand that the Bible is not silent on this issue, but the Bible kind of gives us a way to think through these issues, but it does not say, here is literally exactly yeah. what you do. Much of what the Bible has to say about all issues requires thought. And some people would call, instead of using language like redeem, they would use the the phrase gray area. And I think that's wrong. I don't think anything should be looked at as a gray area, because I also think it's it's very dangerous to say, well, it's either white or it's, or it's black. It's either you know sinful or it's good. I think that that is not the way that the Bible treats this type of issue where culture is concerned. Because Jesus, of course, in Matthew chapter 10, told us to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. In Matthew chapter 5, he told us to be 
um, to be the light of the world. He told us to be a city that is set on a hill. We've been told in Scripture we need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to realize that we, just as Christ was, we are to understand that our citizenship is in heaven, but we are ambassadors for reconciliation in this world. And the way that Jesus came and dwelt among us, he partook of so much where culture is concerned in order to engage where the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned, and we have to be better at that. Uh, I know as a church, we fall into this strange category of seeking to to proclaim the holiness of God and be holy as he is holy and seek to grow in holiness in all things. But most of the time, from what I've seen where church ministry is concerned, people that have a focus on holiness are terrible at evangelists because they're so afraid of staining their holiness that they actually... Um, actually compromise their holiness, because part of holiness is, is evangelization. And so they're terrible evangelists, but they think that that's an excuse. I'm, I'm just too holy, that's, so evangelism is not something that I can do. But then you have people who seek to live the mission of Jesus and be incarnational as Jesus was in John 1, and they compromise their holiness in order as an excuse to reach the world with Jesus for the with the, uh, to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul talks about and I just want to use three areas. He talks about this more than this. But I want to ask the question, how did the apostle Paul view engaging the culture around him from what I would call a missional perspective or a perspective of the mission of Jesus? And the first text I want to talk through is 1 Corinthians 9:19 9, through 23. The apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, "Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all. Why? For the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's actually talking through everything that he's been criticized for. Uh, he was criticized for ministering to Jews and partaking in their practices in order that he might be a better evangelist to them. Uh, he was criticized by the Jews when to reach the Gentiles. He ignored uh, Jewish customs in order to be a better minister of the gospel there. To people who were Gentiles who were former idol worshipers, uh, Paul would keep in mind the weaknesses that would come from them having sensibilities that were kind of scarred by their pagan practices. And so he would keep all that in mind. But he says, in every way that he changes his behavior in order to engage the culture, he doesn't do it thoughtlessly. He mm -hmm. does it for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the key to starting to build a foundation for what Paul's talking about here is we are not called to disengage from culture, but rather we are called to engage it. We do not separate ourselves out. We deal honestly and frankly with the cultural norms. We study it so that we can be better communicate, excuse me, communicators with the people around us. We are to incorporate any tool of culture that we can. When Paul says to those who are outside of the law, I became as one outside the law. In other words, if any part of the Old Testament practices that the Jews would have, and that of course would have been the primary culture for mm -hmm. Paul, that would have been, you know, his what they would call love language, of course, 
was living in Jewish culture, observing Jewish customs. He was not going to bring them into the new culture, but rather he tried to live as much like a Gentile as he could. And the principle that we have to understand in that is that if your fear is that you're going to somehow sin because of your missional posture, you have to understand that what God has explicitly told us not to do, Paul wouldn't do that. He says, I'm under the law of Christ. He yeah. says, I, I act as one outside the law, but I'm not saying I do lawless deeds. Mm-hmm. He's saying, I don't do immoral things. We can't do any of that. Paul would reject the aspects of culture that needed to be rejected, but he would receive the things in the culture that made sense that he could turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he would also try to redeem parts of culture. The most interesting way that Paul did this was, of course, in Acts chapter 17. He goes to Athens, a completely Gentile culture that was very, very superstitious. And at one point, uh, they they, uh, would um, build literally an idol, uh, a statue of of a false god, anywhere that an animal would lay down because they were trying to get a certain famine or drought to, to be over. And Paul saw one, and basically the Greeks ran out of names, and so they had all these statues to unknown gods. And so Paul, a very pagan thing, he pointed to one of the statues in Acts chapter 17, and he says, I know who that unknown God is. Mm -hmm. I see that you are very religious, and he sought to redeem any aspect of their false religion that he could. And then ultimately he goes through, he quotes pagan poets, he quotes pagan philosophers, he uses the vernacular of their language pointing to one of their temples, but then ultimately looks to them and he says, you have to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it does seem, and just listening to all, all those things that you just said there, really key framework for this this is true of the christian life in new testament but in thinking about how to redeem culture you have to be thinking about mission Mm -hmm. you have to be thinking about your life in terms of mission to be able to properly redeem culture and even the example that you just talked about there with paul i mean redeeming the culture is about first identifying the false idol because if you'd just be receiving it if there wasn't a false Mm -hmm. idol to redeem so we're admitting there's something here that's not quite right like in the example of yeah. Paul and the, the altar to an unknown God. So you're identifying there's a false thing there, but then you're asking, but how can I turn this to a right and proper motivation, a right and proper understanding of seeing who Jesus is? And so that's the missional impulse to say, I see these people that need Jesus. How can I get them from where they are to where they need to be, which is worshiping Christ? And so that's redeeming. There's something in the reject category. It just there's no way I'm going to get from sin yeah. to Christ. Right. But there is a way I can get from confusion, a false idol, the right need to worship, but worshiping the wrong thing, and take that and say, yeah, you actually need to be worshiping Jesus. Yeah, you always have to be weary of just outright condemning something that a foolish unbeliever is doing. Now, when it comes to absolute immorality. You avoid those things. You are very honest with people about your ab, you know, abstinence from such things. But one of the interesting things I've, I've seen uh, you know, as I've grown where apologetics is concerned 
It's you're not trying to end as many conversations as you're trying to begin. You do have to try to be winsome in the way that you talk to people about their false belief systems. When you're trying to engage that Mm -hmm. person and bring them to Christ, you can point out the kind of the foolishness in a way that gets them to think through rather than just saying, you know, you're a fool. Yeah, uh, that, that's conversation ender. That is not a conversation starter. But where you know, First Corinthians nine was concerned, what Paul did not have a command against. He just used wisdom uh, about seeing how it could be used so that he could be a better missionary. He became a Jew to the Jew, a Greek to the Greek. You have to figure out, and specifically, specifically for our purposes as people in Virginia. As you try to reach your neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ in Virginia, you need to look at them and say, what practices are they partaking in that I can redeem uh, for the sake of the gospel, rather than just trying to feel holier than everyone else? Um, Sometimes we just excuse our legalism um, and our penchant for wanting to feel like we're better than everybody else through the guise of Christianity. Now, Good question would be, isn't that risky? You know, isn't it risky to engage another culture? Um, Don't you risk syncretism? Don't you risk losing the beauty of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and what it is to live the Christian life? Aren't you kind of risking being tempted by sin sometimes if you go to, you know, social functions where that is concerned? And of course, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 14. Uh, in Romans 14, 1, he states this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And then skip down to verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather, decide uh, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you, no long, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I want to go through a couple of points as to what he's saying there, and then I want to get your thoughts. First, the apostle is, is basically telling us that this must be viewed through the lens of sanctification or Christian growth. He's saying that there are going to be people who are weaker in their faith that are not ready to engage the culture around them. They, uh, Whatever lifestyle they are coming out of into faith in Christ has left them with temptation. It has left them with a temptation to fall into sin. And so they're going to have a harder time engaging the culture around them without falling uh, hopelessly into sin. And I would say it goes further than that they are going to be tempted to use evangelism as an excuse for their sin. And the hope of Romans 14 is not to label two categories, that there's going to be some people that are strong and there's going to be some people that are weak. 
and you're probably not going to like each other, but try to get along. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying there needs to be hope for sanctification here, or Christian growth is an easier way to understand that. There needs to be a view for how a weaker brother, somebody that is struggling with redeeming the culture around him or her, and how that person can have a path to become a stronger brother. So the warning is focused to the stronger brother in many senses here, because what the Apostle Paul is saying is, be careful around those those that are weaker in the faith. Don't tempt them into sin. Uh, but of course, then there are things not everyone's going to be comfortable with. Like there, there are ways in engaging the the culture that people aren't going to be comfortable with. Uh, but then also, of course, we must never accuse others of sin just because we are uncomfortable and tempted. And this is the big one where I think the holiday season is concerned. Yeah. No one wants to be the weaker brother. No one. So it's much easier as someone who is tempted into sin to look at everybody else and say, you better stop it. You need to be holier than that. What you're really saying is, I'm struggling but I'm going to say I'm holy because I don't want to admit I'm weak. And so what I'm going to say pridefully is you're just not as holy as I am. Uh, yo, my goodness, you took your kids trick-or-treating last night. How dare you? you you're you partaking in demon worship. Your kids are going to be drawing pentagrams in the garage before you know <laughs> it. What you're actually doing is, is you are protecting uh, yourself from having to admit that you've got some struggles, you've got some places that you need to grow. And I would say having a lack of understanding as to cultural engagement, that that's a great sign for a weaker brother as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, one thing <clears throat> that just reads throughout that text is mission, because mm -hmm. Paul's whole framework for the weaker brother, stronger brother is has a purpose to it. It's not just and whatever everyone wants to do out in the culture, there's yeah. a weaker brother, stronger brother. It's actually, if you are pursuing mission to bring people to Christ, some of you are going to feel freedom to do some things and some of you aren't. And you need to have some grace in that. But I think so often we just go straight to the, are you comfortable with, with this or are you not? And we bypass the whole purpose for mm -hmm. why Paul was saying we should be doing these things. And that is... Mission. So to go to your your Halloween example, uh, one thing that I do think would help the weaker brothers out is to properly evaluate: is my is this other Christian? And of course, part of the weaker brother, stronger brother dilemma is one never thinks the other yeah. is the right one. Like yeah. you never think you're the weaker brother. You always think the other person's just in sin. You got to recognize that. But for the purposes of this, say. You do think your brother is sinning in their participation in Halloween. One thing I think you need to identify from that passage is can you clearly see in their life an impulse towards mission? Mm. If you can, I think it should give you pause to give you some grace. Yeah. On the other hand, that, that is also that works the other way too. Um, if, if we are concerned that someone is just using this uh, dynamic as license to sin, one of the ways that I'm going to evaluate that is is there evidence of mission in their life? Right. Because uh, if there's not, then it very well could be they just want to do what they want to do. You should always be weary of labeling yourself missional when you are just excusing your sin uh, to syncretize right. uh, with the culture around you. And so I, I would say if you're the type of person that, uh, that you know, drinks heavily where alcohol is concerned, 
uh, you are going to be tempted. You're going out on Friday and Saturday nights and you are getting drunk. There is going to be a temptation for that type of person to say, this is how I engage the culture around me. This is how I am missional. No, that's immoral. God has been very clear. Drunkenness is clearly a sin. And so you're not engaging the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're actually syncretizing with the culture and trying to baptize it in the name of Jesus. You're not a stronger brother. You are actually a weaker brother who has fallen into sin. But on the flip side of that, you need to be weary of labeling yourself as a weaker brother when you're just trying to be legalistic. Yeah. And some people will kind yeah. of use that, oh, you know, you can just call me the weaker brother if you want to. But when you have that attitude, understand that what you're actually doing is, is you're trying to deify what a weaker brother is and act like the weaker brother is actually the most religious thing that you can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Weaker brother is, is what holiness looks like, and you're actually just being a legalist. Yeah. Uh, you're just trying to hold everybody accountable to a standard that you have created apart from Scripture. I remember years ago, Elmer Towns, I heard him say, uh, where Scripture is silent, you probably should be too. And so I often just encounter person after person who has a preference, and they treat their preferences as though they are biblical. Your preferences aren't biblical, they're just preferences. And so you should not, in order to get everybody to follow your preferences, to make you feel better about the fact that you have a way that you want to do things, you should never baptize that in the name of Jesus. That is actually wickedness personified. You're being a Pharisee in that regard. But the goal is growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, look at that last text in verse, uh, 18, verse 18 and 19. He says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, weaker brothers can't look at stronger brothers and take their holiness away from them. They've been approved by God, but he also uses that interesting phrase, approved by men. That's fascinating because the gospel makes you approved even if a weaker brother is bringing accusation. So verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. That is a great uh, phrase to jump off of to understand that the goal Paul had is for the weaker brother to be weak no longer. The stronger brothers among us must understand that our obligation to the weaker brother is to aid them in their Christian growth so that they can become stronger brothers. But the only way it's going to happen is if weaker brothers admit that they're struggling with sin. Mm-hmm. And for the stronger brothers to sacrifice uh, some of the license that God necessarily has given them in freedom with Christ in order to have conversations with those weaker brothers. But the weaker brother will oftentimes try to slow the progress of the gospel down to pull the stronger brother back. That's also wrong. Uh, the stronger brother needs to sacrifice to help the weaker brother grow, but understand that the stronger brother is going to be pulling the weaker brother along the path to gospel advancement. And when the weaker brother tries to pull the stronger brother back to slow the gospel down, the stronger brother needs to abandon the weaker brother. How do I know that? Because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 14, uh, the Apostle Paul basically tells us that there's more at stake here than personal growth. I think sometimes we think that our personal growth is the ultimate where following Jesus is concerned. It, that it can be, unless by personal growth, you mean you're pious, mm-hmm. um, you know, going you know, 10 miles deep into the gospel without any uh, you know, width in your gospel outreach where culture is concerned. 
this is about the mission of Jesus where Paul is concerned. In 1 Corinthians 10, he speaks uh, again to the church at Corinth, and he says, Therefore, my, bro- my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's the key. Reject. Yep. Reject anything that's going to promote immorality in your life because immorality is always rooted at some level in idolatry. And he says, I speak as to sensible people. I love the way Paul would write, (laughs) because when he says something like that, he's being sarcastic. He's saying, I'm trying to use logic here. I'm trying to be rational with you, but you guys are crazy. (laughs) You guys are causing problems where there shouldn't be any problem. He says, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's talking about the fellowship that Christians share with each other uh, that makes them unique in the body of Christ. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participant in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want to be participants with demons. And that's kind of Paul is being very clear here. He's saying, look, if you think anything I'm about to tell you to do is me promoting you into false religion, you need to understand, Every false religion is rooted in demons. It's not just kind of some mystical reality that's kind of neutral where God is concerned. All false ideologies are rooted in the devil. He's saying, I believe that. So I'm not going to promote anybody to follow Satan. And that's kind of the ultimate accusation where Halloween is concerned. (laughs) Are you trying to, you know, do you you know what you're promoting? And I I always kind of want to look at people when they say things like that to me and ask questions like that. It's like, no, clearly I haven't thought this through as much as you have. Please educate. Me. But the apostle is saying, why would I do that? He's like, I love Jesus. I'm participating in the body of Christ with you. I view us as one. I'm not going to push you into demonology. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he And then in verse 23, he makes the turn. And so he's rooted himself in a biblical worldview. He's rooted himself rejecting an aspect of culture that he says is absolutely unhelpful. And then he goes to, now we need to redeem the culture. Verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And that's an important thing, a little background. What's happening here is there's been a controversy over whether or not Christians are allowed to go to the Corinthian grocery store and buy the meat. Because basically what they would do is they would use meat and they would sell it in the marketplace a day after it had been offered in pagan ceremonies to false gods. Because, you know, as you know, false gods cannot actually eat anything because, you know, they're false gods and aren't real. And so then basically the pagans in Corinth would be like, well, can we make some money off this meat? Well, let's sell it. And so in the church at Corinth, there were a lot of people who had been saved out of those lifestyles. And they're being invited over to dinner at people at the church of Corinth's house. And they're like, okay, let's have a steak. Where'd you get that steak? Well, I got it over at the the first uh, grocery of Corinth. And and so then the people say, I can't eat that. Well, why not? What's been offered to idols? You are eating the meat of demons, is what people were saying. And Paul's addressing that. And so 
He says, eat what's sold in the market. You're, you're thinking through too much here. It's kind of like boycotting Starbucks. You're thinking a little too much into what your coffee drinking is doing. Drink the stupid coffee. <laughs> Stop worrying about what's going on uh, you know, at corporate headquarters. You're not responsible for that. But your foolish boycotting of everything under the sun could actually become a barrier to the gospel of Christ. And Paul says, I become a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek. I tear down barriers. I don't build them up so that I feel holier. He says, verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, because what the Apostle Paul actually says is there are certain places where you're going to have to have situational ethics. (laughs) The very thing that everyone says you should never do, the Apostle Paul says, there are going to be situations where you eat the meat, and there are going to be situations where you don't eat the meat. You just got to learn to read the room, bro. (laughs) He says, you know, if you're taken to the house of someone who is an unbeliever, and they put a meal before you, and they and they know it was used to be offered to idols, and they're not worried about that because they're not Christians, don't worry about it either. Eat it with thanksgiving. But if you find yourself in a place where someone is is basically struggling with the temptation that meat is putting them because they want to go worship that false god, he's saying, abstain. Yeah. Don't eat. He's saying, this isn't about eating or not eating. This is about people. This is about how much you're loving your neighbor. Do you want people to come to faith in Christ? Do you want people to grow in their faith in Christ? You have to use wisdom where culture is concerned. Something I want to point out there, because we're in the context of talking about redeeming culture, is that is a call to maturity from Mm -hmm. Paul. Because, And I say that because there's a little piece of that example that gets taken out of context and misused, and that is... Paul's calling you to maturity. He's not calling you to be the person that says, don't you know where that meat came from? Like, that's not the example. Right. That's not the example we're supposed to be following. We're supposed to be following the example of someone who is being gracious with that person. But if you're reading this text and you're thinking, hmm, I can use that to get my way. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I can, I can go around and say, I'm not comfortable with that. So you better not do it. And unfortunately, we see that. Oh, yeah. A lot. And so just real, that is not how that text is written. It's not how it's to be used. Why would you look at a text and say, I want to be Paul's example of immaturity? Right, right. Your goal always needs to be maturity. And what's going on there is the reality that we need to beware the danger of being a weak, of using being a weaker brother as an excuse. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we'll use it as an excuse to just not want to do certain things. We'll use it as an excuse to get our and way. That's a temptation for any of us. Right. Like we're all going to be tempted to do that to get our way. So you know, I'm not, I'm not dogging that so much as saying, but we all have to guard against doing that. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, we see this a lot, especially where 
corporate watchdogs are concerned. Um, I can hear, and and I'm going to use some examples, and <laughs> and I know some people listen to this podcast. Uh, th- this is where you are, and I'm not mocking you, but I am calling you to think through what you're doing. Um, people want to meet with me, and my favorite place to meet with people is early in the morning at Starbucks. <laughs> And because I like their coffee, uh, some people think it tastes burnt. I think it tastes holy. Uh, it's just, it is very good. And so I'll say, "Hey, meet me, Starbucks, you know, wherever." Oh, uh, we can't do that. And I'm always like, "Why?" They say, oh, "I don't drink Starbucks coffee." Oh, okay. Uh, well, where where do you want me to meet? And oh, Panera Bread, because Panera Bread is so much more holy. Uh, and and so <laughs> I, I will I will change the meeting place. But what we don't understand is is that when you live that life. Of saying, well, th- this company is holy, this company is unholy, this company is holy. It- it's kind of a fool's errand because ultimately you've got to churn your own butter uh, if if you're <laughs> really looking into every company. Yeah. But it's not making you a stronger brother to kind of push that on other people, but rather it's actually limiting uh, how much fellowship you can have with other people by pretending that there's a holiness distinction at risk here. There really isn't. The goal must always be for weaker brothers to grow past old temptations in order to be more mission-minded. So if you are a person uh, that that wants to enforce your food restrictions mm-hmm. on everybody, what you need to understand is, is that, that you are creating a barrier to the gospel. But what Paul's also saying is, if you're the type of person that thinks food restrictions are absolutely ridiculous and you're invited to someone's house who happens to be a vegetarian and they're a vegetarian because they've got something going on, whatever it is, and you're bringing a steak and asking them if they'll fire <laughs> up the grill for you, that's foolish as yeah. well. Because in both categories, you are kind of being selfish where your standards are concerned, where their standards are concerned, and there is a better way. So if you are a vegetarian and you are invited to the home of an unbeliever and they cook you cheeseburgers, eat the cheeseburger. It is a missional distinctive that you will lay down your preference, your preference rather, for vegetarianism or veganism in order to engage people with the gospel. Um, If you are a carnivore and you've not had a vegetable in 10 years and you're invited to the home of a vegan, all right, and you go, and they put it in front of you, and you're horrified by what you see in front of you because you don't even know what to call it. All right, eat the food. Uh, you are to engage that person where they are, where the gospel is concerned. But now, if you are in community with one another as followers of Christ, here's the key: the one without food restrictions, and I'm not talking about health here. I'm just talking about preference. The one without restrictions is more mature in the faith than the one with restrictions. So if you have chosen to be gluten-free, vegan, soy, you know, fair trade, organic certified, you know, GMO-free, everything under the sun, where basically you're just eating a raw diet of blueberries and bananas, that's all that you consume in your day. Understand that those distinctions are not making you more holy. They are actually creating barriers with everyone else. That to have those types of preferences in your life, and that's all that it is, is a preference. Again, I'm qualifying. I'm not talking about medical issues. I'm talking about preferences. That's all I'm talking about. 
If you're using those preferences, you are literally in a way guilty of what Paul is talking about here. Paul is warning us about putting our personal preferences over and against the needs of others in our lives. I mean, we must always reject uh, idolatry. Paul's clear. But we must also realize that since false gods are fake, you can eat meat guilt-free. Yeah, there's a clear call to peace in Romans 14, so we don't want, we want to acknowledge that. There's a call to come together for the sake of mission in peace. But here's what I want to get your thoughts on, because what do you do then if we don't agree on the category of reject? Because I do think that's what comes up, is mm-hmm. Bill Earl, like we're talking about preferences, but there are folks who we think it's a preference, but in their mind, this is not a preference. They have a clear word from God that Halloween is evil and must be rejected in totality. I would like to see that clear word from God in Scripture, and then we can talk. Uh, Because usually on issues like that, what they will do is is they will give me a history that they found on a blog, um, on a Google search, and they will not have uh, clear Scripture uh, to point to me as to why it must be rejected. The thing to understand is someone's always right and someone's always wrong. Disagreements just work that way. And no one wants to be wrong, but someone always is. And the key with understanding right and wrong is who's more biblical. And if your preference uh, or of where rejection is concerned has been shown to be nothing more than a preference, uh, you need to change your preferences. Uh, you know, you, you need to stop trying to bring everybody over to your side, because that's where division comes from. Um, And the person that's right needs to deal with it in a strong brother-like way. But at the same time, you cannot allow the weaker brother to stay the weaker brother forever. Yeah, I think another teaching of Romans 14, too, is at some point we're just going to have to decide there's some things not not worth dividing. Oh, yeah. You know, even if we're not going to ultimately agree on that, it's not worth dividing over. Some things are and some things aren't. And I would hope that some of those things in those categories are just not worth dividing over. Yeah, and, and I think that has to be the understanding, yeah. that life is less about feeling holy and more about engaging the culture around you. Right. And where preferences are concerned, preferences, preferences can become uh, sinful and divisive, yeah. but they don't have to. They don't have to. You don't have to let them. And so then the question ultimately becomes, let's use Halloween as the example. So is Halloween worth dividing over? You will not find stronger brothers dividing over Halloween. You will only find weaker brothers dividing over Halloween. Here's the key. Here at Village Church, we tell people you are going to be more evangelistic, you are going to be more missional if you use the one day a year where your neighbor's literally come to your door and literally invite you to come to their door. You are going to have a better relationship with your neighbors if you will take up that opportunity, if you will redeem that opportunity. At the end of the day, am I going to um, break fellowship with you or, or, or think that I need to have division with you if you turn your porch light off uh, and don't hand out candy? No. Yeah. And let's no. be clear. I think you're wrong. Like, I'm not even saying right. this is agree to disagree. Yeah. You know, I just think you're wrong. And in this case, you're going to think I'm wrong, but I am going to plead, but let's not divide over that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Some, uh, go ahead. Something from the verses you read that I want to, we think it would be helpful to bring up. And that was all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Yeah. And I think that's a really helpful category in talking about redeeming culture. Mm-hmm. Because often I think we think about redeeming the culture. So let's try to just for a very little bit of time, get away from the holidays because that's very easy topic. We can get back to Christmas if you want to. But just in general, redeeming culture, I think we get this idea that it just means whatever we're doing out in the culture, just slap Jesus on it. And I don't just mean cheesy Christian <laughs> stuff. I also mean just like saying, you know, I'm do whatever I'm doing, I'm going hiking today for the glory of God. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch college football all day long for the glory of God. Yeah. And so it's just some things aren't actually helpful. And so some redeeming culture doesn't always look like just taking whatever we want to do and saying it's for Jesus's glory. Redeeming culture often means choosing mm-hmm. th- some things to do over other things. I'm certainly all for building a holistic life. So do I think you can go on a hike to the glory of God? Of course. Absolutely. Do I think that uh, the timing of your hike, if you uh, you say, okay, I always go on hikes during the time that my community group meets, uh, that's to the glory of God. No, it's not. Yeah. Now it has crossed over into becoming a barrier to Christian growth. Now you're just using license to prevent growth in your life. I'm going hiking to the glory of God. It just so happens to be um, on Sunday mornings uh, mm-hmm. that, that I actually have time to do that. Well, no, actually, you're, you're t- this is Lord's Day. You need to gather corporately with your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, sing songs to God, receive the Word of God, yeah. eat the Lord's Supper, um, and you need to realize that while you are allowed to go hiking, absolutely, you have the freedom in Christ to give God glory on that hike, rest, feel good, breathe in that clean air up in the mountains, but you are not being beneficial to yourself or anybody else when you put that above and beyond the things that God has clearly said yeah. you need to do for your personal discipleship. Perfect example of that. We can absolutely redeem redeem <laughs> participating in sports, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, many I had that experience. I'm, I think you did mm-hmm. also. wish I had known more about missional living at the time yeah. when I was playing baseball. However, um, can you redeem teaching your child that sports is more important than worshiping with the church on Sunday no, morning? You can't. No, you can't. And so if your plan for redeeming participating in a sport is, I'm going to miss 12 Sundays a year playing that sport, you're not redeeming the culture. You're syncretizing time. with the culture on that. You're actually right. propagating an unhealthy cultural thing that needs to be rejected and that is the idolatry of sports. In that lens, and I don't want to take the language too far, but in that lens, you are sitting down at the table of the demon and just eating up the food of a demon in that regard because you are syncretizing into culture with an unhealthy practice because you now have gone over into an area where you believe a false ideology of what giving God glory and what living the good life actually is. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Christmas because I think Christmas is a very helpful way to talk about redeeming the culture. Okay, because it's a little different than than Halloween because Halloween is not an explicitly Christian holiday. You know, it can be used for missional purposes, right. but it's just it's different. Christmas is an explicitly Christian holiday. Yeah. However, the the charge when it comes to redeeming Christmas is all the other things that our culture has made Christmas about. And how can you redeem all the consumerism and all the, you know, Santa Claus and the extra biblical stories and all these other things. And so I think Christians often struggle with 
redeeming Christmas even more because they think that redeeming Christmas means becoming more pious, becoming more reverent, taking everything and and reducing it only to the Jesus story, which is ultimately the reason for Christmas. And what we have said at Village Church and what we want to talk about is redeeming Christmas is way bigger than that. It means taking all of it and submitting it to the glory of God. But I think people struggle with how to parse that out. So Yeah, I think I think that. you have to begin with an understanding that Christians own Christmas. Jesus owns every part of Christmas. And so it's our job where the culture is concerned to understand that everything about Christmas has the magic pixie dust of Christ on it. <laughs> And it's our job to just own it, to engage it, and to use it for our purposes so that the world will not take it from us. And so, you know, when you talk about, you know, eating good food, when you talk about giving gifts, when you talk about generosity, when you talk about Christmas carols, uh, when you talk about Christmas movies, I mean, all of it has this huge theme of joy. And it's even us, where our Christmas services are concerned, I think the main criticism we get is that people don't feel holy enough. Like, we're not not sanctifying Christmas enough for their benefit. What they mean by that is sucking all the happiness out. Uh, the problem that Christians oftentimes have is, is that they don't want any part of Christianity to have a smile on its face, to have laughter, to have fun, to have rejoicing. Rather, they want to sit sullen, uh, sing sad songs, light a candle, blow it out, happy birthday, Jesus. You know, sorry, all your <laughs> gifts are terrible. But the, the key is, is that we have to understand that all of the joy of Christmas is ours, and so we should take part in every single aspect of it. Now, should you become idolatrous? No, but if you are idolatrous during the Christmas season, it's not the Christmas season that did it. It's because you've been idolatrous all year. Like if you're worried about your kids um, thinking Christmas is too materialistic, all right, I can promise you the gifts under the tree on Christmas morning are not what's causing your kids to be materialistic. It's what you're doing to them the other 364 days a year. If your kids don't wake up on Christmas morning singing Happy Birthday Jesus, they're just disappointed that they didn't get a Nintendo Switch. All right, It isn't how you celebrated Christmas that made that child such a dirty brat. All right, It's what you did the other 364 days. You cannot expect to treat Christianity as an option or a hobby in your life rather than a full commitment, and then on Christmas Day expect to have this majestic holy moment with your family. If you're going to ignore Jesus the other 365 days a year, you cannot sanctify that one day a year and expect the Holy of Holies to pop out of your Christmas tree. You need to realize Christmas trees are beautiful and a wonderful way of celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Giving your kids good gifts, spending money on your kids having good gifts on Christmas morning, that is a great way to point the attention of Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, leaving cookies out for Santa Claus the night before, that is a great way to get your kids' attention to Jesus Christ. It's all in how have you conditioned your kids the rest of the year. 
If you condition your kids the rest of the year, they're waiting with joyful expectation to open a gift and to say, this is the birthday party of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Good news. I get Jesus' Nintendo Switch. All right? Yeah. That, that is how yeah. your kids need to look like, at Christmas. If you wait until the five days before Christmas and say, oh, wait, 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 this is all about Jesus. Yeah. Even though the other 360 <laughs> days of our life yeah. has not been all about Jesus, then of course the kids are going to be confused. Yeah. And it's like you have to take it to a logical ends you know we uh have a a uh it's it's not it's not huge but we have a a a larger than i've seen for other people's nativity scene that we put in our front yard but we also have a life-size jesus (laughs) excuse me a life-size santa claus we have rudolph you know we have frosty the snowman we put lights all over our house but some people would look at that nativity scene and they would say, oh my goodness, it's so sad that you're letting these other things take the focus off that nativity scene. If that is how you're looking at Christmas, then no one is going to see joy in your life. You're just a Pharisee and you need to stop it. You need to understand that the nativity scene is what draws the attention with everything else. I think Christmas is a very good opportunity for Christians to learn what it means to bring everything under submission to Christ right. because Christmas is about Jesus. And so we, like you said to intro this, we own that holiday. It's ours. But the history of Christmas is fascinating because this is what the church did. Um, you'll hear people talk about pagan traditions in Christmas, like a Christmas tree, um, like even what has developed with St. Nicholas, yeah. all kinds of other things. Here's the truth. A lot of them are pagan traditions that the church said, nope, that's ours now. Yeah. Like we're using that to celebrate um, God's gift of Jesus. Christians are awesome. We need to keep doing that. Yeah. We we need to redeem every part of culture that we possibly can. Uh, we need to know the real history of St. Nicholas, the fact that he was a real figure in church history who fought for orthodox theology and gave great gifts to kids in need. We need to celebrate those things. Yeah. Your child is not going to leave the faith because they think that on Christmas Eve, a jolly old fat man comes down uh, the chimney and puts gifts under the tree. Uh, Now, if you're so stupid and you don't have a brain that you tell your child that that's literally the totality of Christmas, (laughs) well, you're going to get what you invest in right there. But that's not the reason. Let me tell you, why why could your kid, why could your five-year-old potentially leave the faith in 15 years? Well, because you sucked the joy out of absolutely everything and you refused to let them have a Merry Christmas. That's why. You need to learn to redeem what you can redeem and have joy about every moment of it. Well, in light of that, we're heading into Thanksgiving. I want to say a happy Thanksgiving. I want to say Merry Christmas. And a happy Halloween. See you next time.